You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode four. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. On this episode of the show, we'll be talking with Adam Ratner. Adam is the guest experience manager for the Marine Mammal Center, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to the conservation and recovery of marine mammals. The Marine Mammal Center has its home base along the California coast, which is where they've been rescuing and rehabilitating sick and injured marine mammals uh, since the organization was founded back in the mid-1970s. But this organization is so much more than a traditional rehabilitation facility. Uh, As you'll see once we get into this conversation with Adam, the folks at the Marine Mammal Center have a very firm grasp on uh, what I like to think of as the big picture of uh, conservation and marine mammal conservation, but but really conservation in general. Adam has a really good sense of how uh, the impact that marine mammal conservation has on other species, um, the ecosystem as a whole, um, and also how it's connected to, uh, to human health. In the work that the Marine Mammal Center has done um, and in the research that they've done, um, they, they've identified threats to marine mammal populations, but they've also identified uh, threats to human health. So uh, some really important stuff that we'll be talking about here with Adam. Um, Adam has played a crucial role in fostering the relationship between the Marine Mammal Center and Wild Lens. Uh, We've produced three short videos in collaboration with the Marine Mammal Center thus far, and Adam has been a producer on all three of these videos. He's a fantastic scientist, a fantastic educator, and uh, we couldn't be happier to have him on the show. So let's get right to that interview. All right. Well, I am here with Adam Ratner, who is the guest experience manager for the Marine Mammal Center in California. Um, how you doing, Adam? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, you bet. Good to have you on the program. Um, I'm going to start off just by asking you how you were first introduced to the work being done by the Marine Mammal Center. Of course. I've been at the Marine Mammal Center for just over five years at this point in a variety of different roles. And my background really is more in the science and the research. I was a marine biologist kind of by trade and did a lot of work studying animal behavior and animal learning. So I've worked in a couple of labs around the country doing bird hearing and speech, fish learning and memory, a little bit with marine mammals, a little bit with primates. And I was really drawn to marine mammals as a whole just because we know so little about them that everyone loves dolphins and seals and sea lions for the most part. But some of these really big questions about where do blue whales spend half their lives, we still don't know. So that really drove me towards the marine environment. And as I started learning more about seals and sea lions and dolphins and, and interacting with them, I started seeing them all getting sick. So I switched gears a little bit, a little bit away from the research side, more to a conservation side. And the Marine Mammal Center provided a perfect avenue to be able to not only continue this love of learning and studying and finding out what makes these animals special, but at the same time helping those that are in fact sick and giving them a second chance at life. So in my position within the education department at the Marine Mammal Center, I'm still very tied to the research and the science that we're learning from these animals, but I also have the chance to engage with over 100,000 visitors to the center each year 
and have them fall in love with these animals and learn how they can help them. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, you know, we, we hear that a lot from, uh, folks who are involved in a lot of the videos that we produce that, you know, a lot of these folks who, um, start out, uh, involved in the research and, uh, you know, just involved in sort of studying these animals and wanting to learn more. And then, you know, we, we often see that sort of turning point where it's like, okay, what can I really do to make a difference and help these animals that, you know, uh, uh, are facing these, in, in a lot of cases, sort of, uh, dire, uh, conservation threats. Um, so yeah, yeah. Neat that you've sort of found a, a niche there, um, at the Marine Mammal Center. So, um, next I'm going to ask you to just, just kind of give me a, a, a basic breakdown of, of the mission of the Marine Mammal Center. How, how do you, um, connect and, and then also to sort of follow up, like, how do you connect with this, uh, this mission on a personal level? So the Marine Mammal Center is the world's largest marine mammal hospital and education facility. So our goals and mission kind of fall into three different categories, if you will, where the first is really the rescue, the rehabilitation, and the release of sick and injured marine mammals. And we're going to rescue any sick or hurt seal, sea lion, whale, dolphin, otter from around 600 miles of California coastline from the top of Mendocino County in the north all the way into Santa Barbara County in the south and be able to get those animals better and release them with a second chance at life back out into the ocean. Alongside of that, we have this mission where we can't just keep taking sick and hurt animals, fixing them and putting them back. We have to know why these animals are getting sick, learn about the health of the ocean, and also try and take actions within education to make sure that these animals stay healthy out in the ocean. So from the research side of things, we're constantly learning about the health of the animal populations, what is making them sick out there, coming up with novel treatment plans for some of these different ailments. And then within education, being able to share all those findings, giving people the opportunity to learn what makes these animals special and to really show them how they can have a huge impact on keeping healthy marine mammal populations and a healthy ocean out there for everybody. Awesome. Fantastic. Um, so what is, what is your specific role? You're the guest experience manager at the Marine Mental Center. What, what exactly does that mean? How, how does uh, that fit into the big picture here? Of course. So I'm part of the education department here. I've been in a few different roles, ranging from primary educator for school groups and adults to managing our youth volunteer program to what I do now within guest experience. And really what it means is I oversee all the day-to-day -day visitor and education operations. So all of our exhibits and signage, our tour programs, our education volunteers, making sure that everyone who walks through the front door has a meaningful, enjoyable, and powerful experience learning what we do here and walks away knowing a little bit more about marine mammals, knowing a little bit more about the Marine Mammal Center, and also learning how they can help keep the ocean a healthy place for all those animals that are out there. Fantastic. So... You, you, you did you kind of touched on my next question, but um, I, I sort of want to delve into this just a, a, a little bit deeper and get a little bit deeper into the mission of the Marine Mammal Center. Um, and so I, I guess my next question is sort of based around this, you know, the fact that, you know, uh, uh, I occasionally hear, you know, working um, in the field of wildlife conservation, um, I occasionally hear criticism of uh, organizations that are focused on uh, rehabilitation um, of wildlife. 
um, sort of, I, I think I think the sort of the the focus of this criticism is that you know you're by focusing on individual animals, it's easy to sort of lose that big picture perspective. You know, uh, instead of looking at what's happening to a species or an ecosystem as a whole, you know, uh, you're just looking at you know the health and well-being of these one individual, uh, this one individual animal. Um, how, how how would you respond to something like this, and, and how is the Reed Mammal Center different than a traditional uh, wildlife rehabilitation center? So the Marine Mammal Center will rescue around 600 to 800 animals every single year that are sick and hurt along the California coast. And while every animal that we rescue is important and we strive to give that animal the second chance at life that it deserves, that's not necessarily the ultimate goal for the work that we're doing. We really do focus on that big picture, making sure it's a healthy ecosystem for all of the seals and sea lions out there, for people as well and the connections to human health. And then also working with groups around the world because a lot of these animals span oceans and they span countries and international waters. So really collaborating to make sure that what we learn about these animals is shared widely. Whatever expertise we might have is used to help benefit other animal populations and vice versa and really collaborating with other countries and other organizations that have similar expertise when taking care of certain ailments. And with the work that we're doing, whether it is on the California coast working with sea lions and elephant seals and diagnosing issues along the lines of cancer or various toxins like domoic acid, there are huge amounts of kind of parallels with seal and sea lion health and human health. So not only can we actually help save a sea lion that's suffering from a toxin like domoic acid, we can help prevent people from getting that toxin in the first place by rescuing this animal and communicating it with the Department of Public Health. So there really is a big window of opportunity when taking care of seals and sea lions to be able to help that bigger picture and really inspire conservation on a much larger level than simply saving one or two animals each year. Absolutely. That's that's fantastic. And I love that, that connection that you uh, uh, talk about between you know the health of these marine mammals and human health. Um, and I think that's something that, that that's a connection that I think people um, often forget about, right? How interconnected these, uh, how, how interconnected we are with all these ecosystems. And if something is affecting a marine mammal population, like yeah, it's probably having an effect, having an effect on us as well. Um, I wonder if you have any sort of like specific examples of, uh, I mean, you kind of mentioned, uh, you know, a little bit, you mentioned cancer and you mentioned uh, one specific toxin. I, I guess I wonder if you have any sort of specific examples about, um, you know, a, a, a sick or uh, injured marine mammal that ended up at the Marine Mammal Center for rehabilitation that sort of, you know, led to a specific discovery about something that, that is maybe impacting human health or the health of other uh, wildlife species. There are many examples, really. Um, thinking about the toxin that I mentioned earlier, something called domoic acid toxicosis. It's a harmful algal bloom, so very similar to red tide that you might read about in, in news stories and media. This is a particular algae that's found in the waters off of California in very small amounts. And in small amounts, it has no negative impact. But over the past two decades, we've seen this algae blooming. And when you get too much of the toxin, it can actually become toxic. 
and it accumulates up the food chain with small fish like anchovies eating that small algae and then seals and sea lions at the top of the food chain that wind up eating a lot of these now toxic fish. And sea lions are particularly affected. The Marine Mammal Center was the first people actually to identify this toxin in marine mammals back in 1998 when a whole host of sea lions stranded on the beach having seizures, which is one of the most common symptoms. And it turns out that this toxin is something that had been seen before in people, actually. There had been a few deaths from it um, in the late 1980s when people were eating infected shellfish. So what we can do now, actually, is when we rescue a sea lion that's suffering from this toxin, we get in touch with the California Department of Public Health, notify them that the toxin is in those areas, and the fisheries are then shut down. And that way, people are never eating the toxic fish or shellfish, and we can prevent people from ever getting this toxin in the first place. It's kind of like the canary in the coal mine situation, except here at the hospital, we can actually save the sea lion when it's suffering from demonic acid. So it's a win-win for both the animals and for people at the same time. Wow, fascinating. That's super awesome. It's awesome that you have that, you know, that connection and you can just make a phone call and say, yeah, we found this marine mammal. It's suffering from this toxic, you know, from this toxic chemical. So shut down the, you know, the fishery. Um, that's that's uh, super neat. Um, yeah, definitely a good example of how important the work you guys are doing. You know, I so uh, you you probably know Adam that that I have a a, a background in uh, working with the conservation of the California condor, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a scavenger, and um, it's a scavenger that you know is uh, is there's a release program for California condors um, in Big Sur, so there's some overlap in territory, you know, as far as the areas of coastline that um, the Marine Mammal Center works in. Um, and, you know, California condors, you might be familiar with this issue, but California condors in Big Sur um, are suffering from uh, DDT and DDE poisoning. And my understanding is that it's, this is as a result of uh, uh, an old Superfund site off the coast. And these California condors that are released into Big Sur are relying on um, the uh, carcasses of beached marine mammals, uh, mo- primarily seals and sea lions, um, as their food source, and they're being poisoned uh, at low levels by DDT and DDE, and they're suffering from eggshell egg thinning. Um, I, I, so I, I guess my question to you is, I, I wonder if that's something that, that you guys have seen um, or something that you guys test for. So un- unfortunately, we do see DDT in the seals and sea lions as well. And while it's still um, difficult to exactly measure the impact that the DDT is having on the marine mammals, one of the very clear links we have identified is within the cancer that we see with California sea lions. Unfortunately, California sea lions have the second highest rate of cancer of any wild animal population in the world. And we first discovered it here at the Marine Mammal Center in the late 1970s with a discovery of this reproductive urinary carcinoma that the sea lions are getting. And we've been studying it ever since. And it really identified three main causes to that cancer, kind of triggers, if you will, just like when you think about humans and cancer. There's, without a doubt, a genetic component that we're seeing that sea lions with the genes for that cancer are more prone to get it, very similar to what you'd expect with a person with breast cancer running through their family or prostate cancer. 
We are also seeing an environmental component, though, as well, where the sea lions that do wind up stranding and dying due to this cancer test for higher levels of DDT and PCBs and other chemicals in their blubber layer. And then we know that a third factor is a viral component as well. So those three things combined are really what's triggering such a high level of cancer in California sea lions, so much so that one in five adult sea lions that pass away are actually caused due to cancer. Now, what we can do to fix that is quite difficult, obviously. There's no treatment at the moment for cancer in California sea lions. We're looking at Um, being able to use models from human health as well as um, trying to come up with preventative measures for this cancer as well. But with one of the triggers being DDTs and PCBs, we know that people have an impact. A lot of it carryover from the Superfund site and the kind of extraordinarily high amount of use that DDTs um, were involved in in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, leading up into uh, Silent Spring, Rachel Carson's book that really raised awareness about the issues. But at the same time, we know that we can have an impact making sure that our use of various chemicals, whether it's PCBs, whether it's things similar to DDT that are still on the market, um, are really restricted so that we don't see this carrying over because we know that it's not just the sea lions that will be affected. If they're getting this cancer, you have the scavengers like the condors, you have other animals, and even potentially people, depending on how this cancer is really coming to be and whether or not people are at risk due to any of the other factors that sea lions are getting the cancer for. Wow. Fascinating stuff there. Um, I I wonder if you know what the wildlife species is that has the highest rate of cancer. If You said California sea lions are number two. It's, it's a common question. I did have to look that one up when I first found out. Uh, the animal with the most common uh, case of cancer is actually the Tasmanian devil in Australia. And it's a contagious cancer, actually, one of only two, along with dogs, that can get a contagious cancer. And similar to the way kind of Warner Brothers portrays Tasmanian devils, they're not necessarily the most docile creatures in the world, and they do bite each other. And that's how they spread this cancer. And it's been really detrimental to the Tasmanian devil population over the past two decades. Now, with that being said, we know why the Tasmanian devil cancer is so high. It's because it's contagious. The sea lion cancer actually isn't. So it goes to show that these other factors, the environmental aspect, the viral aspect, and the genetic aspect, are really playing a huge role in causing such a large amount of these sea lions to get that cancer. Yeah, yeah. Wow, fascinating stuff there. So it's, uh, most of the work of the Marine Mammal Center, um, you know, based on what, what you've been sort of talking about so far, um, is it... Am I correct in uh, assuming that the majority of the work that the Marine Mammal Center has done uh, along that section of the California coast that you first uh, that you mentioned initially? Yeah, so we, we rescue from, from over 600 miles of California coast, so from Mendocino County down to Santa Barbara County at this point, um, and that's where almost all the animals that we're going to rescue and rehabilitate come from. We also work and collaborate with a lot of organizations around the country and around the world, though, to be able to provide the best medical care and the best scientific research to the vast majority of people. So whether that's publishing anywhere between 10 and 20 research papers each year, 
collaborating with anywhere between 40 and 60 other organizations on research projects each year, or our newest work, which is actually taking place in Hawaii, where we've most recently been able to fundraise using support from the general public and from kind of our community of supporters to build a hospital on the big island of Hawaii to help save the most endangered seal or sea lion in the United States, the Hawaiian monk seal. Awesome. Yeah, I'm, de- I'm definitely going to get to uh, a few questions about uh, the work that you guys are doing in Hawaii with the Hawaiian monk seal, because that is a fascinating project. Um, but before we get there, I just, I guess I'm trying to get a sense of, I mean, we've talked about, you know, some specific problems that um, seals and sea lions are having uh, along the California coast with toxins and, and cancer and such. I guess I'm wondering, you know, what's the big picture? What effect um, are, are these toxins having on uh, the populations of these animals? Are these populations in decline? Are they doing all right? Do we have, do we have a sense of uh, uh, how stable these marine mammal populations are along the California coast? Great question. And and we do rescue lots of different types of animals from the California coast. We are really fortunate out here in the Bay Area and with the stretch that we rescue from. We have many marine mammals that call the, the ocean right off our coast its home. With some of the, the animals that we rescue, the California sea lions, the, the Pacific harbor seals, these are really um, solid, steady populations at this point. Ever since 1972 with the Marine Mammal Protection Act, which made it illegal to harm, harass, hurt any marine mammal, these populations have been on the rise and looking quite um, stable, to say the least. Other populations have had a little bit of a rougher history, if you will. So one of our most common patients, the northern elephant seal, used to be hunted dramatically in the late 1800s. It was actually declared extinct in 1890 because we thought we wiped them completely off the planet due to hunting. We used to hunt them for their oil um, or for the blubber that we could then get oil from to be able to light lanterns and things along those lines. And we actually didn't see elephant seals for a few years after until a very small population of less than 100 were found on Guadalupe Island off the coast of Mexico. And they started protecting that population. And in the last 100 years, the population has made a great surge and is now at around 175,000, which is very, very um, stable for a population. The one downside is that they all still come from that same group of 100. There's a huge genetic bottleneck when it comes to elephant seals. And we do see that in a lot of different medical ailments that the elephant seals are coming in with things like spinal deformities, potentially things like cataracts and vision problems, as well as even aspects like cleft palate that we've seen with elephant seals. So we know that that population is good in terms of its sheer numbers, but the genetic diversity means that they are still very vulnerable to some of these unique medical conditions, as well as any big changes in the environment that they won't be able to adapt to. So that's why we keep a really close eye on those populations. We know that they can be used as sentinels for the sea for any dramatic changes. But overall, our three most common patients with the elephant seal, the sea lion, and the harbor seal are pretty stable numbers along the California coast. Other species that we take care of, those like the fur seals, both the northern and the Guadalupe, are listed under the Endangered Species Act, stellar sea lions, Uh, We're just recently taken off of the Endangered Species Act and kind of downlisted from threatened, at least along the California and Oregon coast. So we do see other populations that are more endangered 
then the California sea lion, harbor seal, and elephant seal. And we're going to be working with all of those species just to make sure that they get the best possible care, really monitoring those animal populations. When it comes to things like the Guadalupe fur seal, there's still so little known about their general behaviors, their migration patterns, things along those lines. So we have a great window into that world whenever we are able to take care of the animal and then release it with something like a satellite tag like we did earlier this year with a patient by the name of Sterling Archer. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, it's it's definitely, um, wow, I mean, a, a lot of fascinating information there. Um, it's, it's, it's definitely good to hear about you know, uh, uh, success stories, uh, like you were talking about with the element seal, but yeah, obviously it's, uh, still a situation where, you know, uh, careful monitoring of those populations, uh, seems pretty critical. Um, yeah, interesting stuff. So, um, I, I do want to move on now and, and get a little bit more information, uh, about the, the new Hawaii facility that you guys, uh, are working on and your, um, efforts in, uh, the conservation of the Hawaiian monk seal. Um, I guess I, I guess I'm wondering how that um, how the how did the Marine Mammal Center get involved in conservation of the Hawaiian monk seal? It, it's a very exciting story. So the Hawaiian monk seal is unfortunately the most endangered seal or sea lion in the United States. Their numbers today are just over 1,100, but unfortunately declining at around three to four percent each year. So action is really necessary now if we hope to keep the Hawaiian monk seal from extinction. And for the past decade and even more, any time a Hawaiian monk seal would get sick, we'd collaborate with groups out in Hawaii. We'd actually fly our veterinarians and some of our volunteers out to Hawaii to try and provide care to those animals, either at the beach or at a local organization's um, grounds to be able to try and get that animal better. And over those years, we were able to save a lot of monk seals and give those animals a second chance. But that's not really how you save an animal from extinction. You've got to think the bigger picture. So for the past four years, we've been actually fundraising to build a hospital in Hawaii that's dedicated to rescue, rehabilitating, and releasing Hawaiian monk seals, and also providing education and really community activism to get the community involved in helping take care of the monk seals. And fortunately, with generous donations from our members, from members of the general public, we were actually able to complete a hospital. It had its grand opening actually earlier this month in September and now have a fully functional hospital where we can give state-of-the-art medical care to any Hawaiian monk seal that needs it on those islands. We're utilizing volunteers in Hawaii. We're up to 50 already that are helping us take care of the animals, and we're hoping as the hospital has now been able to launch to really be able to increase the amount of education that is provided, whether that's through outreach events and fairs or going into schools, whatever it might be, to really show the Hawaiian community how special this animal is, how ingrained it is actually to their cultural history, as well as all of the ways that they can help the Hawaiian monk seal by taking simple actions up on land, even though the Hawaiian monk seal spends most of its time away from humans in the first place. Fantastic, fantastic. So I guess I'm wondering, um, <clears throat> you know, where what is causing, you, you mentioned a, a 3 to 4% population decline um, each year. Uh, I mean, do, do you guys have a sense of the the cause or uh i mean there i'm sure there are probably multiple factors um uh that that you guys are dealing with there or is that sort of something that you're working to to figure out 
we actually do have a pretty good idea of the reasons why the monk seals aren't doing well. There's been a lot of research and collaborations between the Marine Mammal Center and NOAA. They have a very specific Hawaiian monk seal recovery project taking place. And we really identified that the juveniles and the younger animals are the ones that are having the most trouble actually surviving. And what we've been able to do is really focus on that age class to try and provide these animals the best possible care. We know that a lot of them are getting caught in trash, even though most of them spend their time out in the Northwest Hawaiian Islands, which is uninhabited by people. There's still a lot of ocean trash due to the way the ocean currents run that's taken trash from the Hawaiian mainland, from the coast of California and the United States, and from Asian countries that kind of congregates in the Hawaiian waters. And these animals are very curious. They also wind up just not being able to avoid some of this trash and wind up stranding with netting or plastics caught around them. Luckily, with the hospital on the Hawaiian Islands, we can fix those issues. We have the ability to disentangle animals that do have any type of entanglement in it. We've been able to identify swollen, or not swollen, swallowed um, trash using x-rays before and be able to provide medical care on that front. So that's one that we know is a big problem, but with the hospital close by, we can provide the care and give those animals a second chance. We also know that one of the big issues is a food resource problem, where these monk seals are having trouble competing with the other animals for a very limited amount of fish that's out there. So whether that is increased predation now by sharks onto the younger Hawaiian monk seals, just because there's not enough food out there for all of them, or the monk seals just struggling to find food and compete with some of the bigger fish out there for the food. So making sure that if we find these monk seals that are out there that are the younger age classes, the pups or the wean pups or the one-year-olds, being able to bring them to the hospital, make sure that they can find and forage successfully for food, and that gets them past that big kind of ledge that they haven't been able to get through, where they just haven't been able to find that food, master the ability to catch fish. So already in our first month of having the hospital operational, we rescued four Hawaiian monk seals. We were able to make sure that they could hunt successfully, made sure that they were up to the weight that they should be, and they've already been released after just a few weeks of care, healthy and happy back out to the ocean with that second chance. Fantastic. That's that's really good to hear. And <clears throat> yeah, I, I think that's, you know, I, I, I keep drawing parallels to the work that I've done with California condors, but it's, you know, it, 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 it's similar in that, you know, once a California condor reaches a certain age um, and they learn those skills, I think this is the case with a lot of, uh, you know, the sort of long lived, uh, uh, intelligent wildlife species out there, you know, once they get past that sort of difficult uh, uh juvenile stage um and you know learn how to adapt to their environment environment and to find food then um they're they're gonna they have a much better chance of of surviving out there um it it, it, it also sounds like you know the other huge benefit to having that new facility out there in hawaii is i mean you mentioned that you already have 50 volunteers coming out there um you know and you mentioned that there are things that hawaiians can do you know on the land that will help uh hawaiian monk seals um you know such as you know just be conscious of where your trash is going right um so yeah so i'm I'm sure that that will also you know play a huge role moving forward in 
um, in, in helping to save this species. Without a doubt, and that's always been one of our major missions, is that we can't just keep taking care of these individual animals and saving them, but if we can get the community involved, really show the importance of that animal and the beauty of that animal, that people can help save that animal by taking collective action. So whether it's thinking about their use of plastics and the role that trash plays to make these animals sick, whether it's things along the lines of sustainable seafood and making sure that when we buy seafood, we're making sure that it's caught in a way that doesn't hurt or harm ecosystems or other animals, or action against global warming. Every action we take up on land, no matter where you are around the country, has a dramatic impact on what the health of the oceans and other animals are like. So it's really important to empower and inspire the communities, whether we're in Hawaii, whether we're in California or elsewhere, that there is so much that we can do to help these animals. Absolutely, absolutely. And that that transitions well into my next question, which is just sort of about... um, just sort of the, the I, I guess in general, the relationship that humans and marine mammals have and the relationship that you see uh, us having with uh, marine mammal populations moving forward. I mean, we've talked a lot about, um, you know, sort of uh, uh, how, you know, the work that the Marine Mammal Center um, is doing to uh, uh, to protect marine mammals and to sort of keep a watchful eye on them and to make sure that those populations are doing all right. Um, I mean, is this a symbiotic relationship? I mean, what are the, what are the marine mammals doing for, uh, for people? Um, you know, I mean, is there some level of symbiosis going on here? So we're extremely interconnected with the ocean and marine mammals. We, we are all mammals, so we get the same diseases and issues that these animals do get. So that's how we're able to use them as sentinels for ocean health. We're also able to learn from those animals in terms of the issues they're getting, the treatments that we can provide them that can actually then be used to treat human health issues as well. So there's a great balance there of understanding the health of the ocean, the health of these animal populations, and the health of human populations as well. We also just simply depend on a healthy ocean for people to really survive. We depend on the ocean for the air we breathe. Over half of the oxygen we breathe comes from a healthy ocean. We depend on the oceans for the food that we eat. Billions of people around the world depend on seafood as a major source of protein. And the sea lions, as a keystone species and other marine mammals, really help keep the ocean in balance to make sure that we've got plankton, we've got the fish populations, and we've got healthy top predators as well. So it really is critical to humans to have that healthy ocean, and seals and sea lions and marine mammals as top predators really help keep everything in balance. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. um, So I guess... I mean, you, you, you really answered my next question as well, which is, you know, why folks should care about marine mammals. Um, and, you know, you've, you've definitely made a strong case for, you know, uh, uh, how important these uh, populations are um, for, for our survival, I think. Um, I, guess my, I guess sort of my, my final question for you would be, um, you know, what can your sort of your average person you know, aside from the obvious, which is, you know, uh, to go volunteer at the Marine Mammal Center, <laughs> right? But say for someone like myself who lives in a landlocked state, you know, I'm out here in Idaho. Um, I mean, it, what is there for someone like myself 
um, you know, what, what, what can I do to, to help marine mammals and help, you know, forward the cause of marine mammal conservation? There's so much that people can do. So it doesn't matter where you live around the world. We're still connected to the ocean and to the health of these animals. So whether it's thinking about issues like trash that affect marine mammals and birds like the condors, every piece of trash basically can get out to the ocean. So even in Idaho or in Kansas, wherever you might be, we see trash getting into creeks and waterways and sewers, and all of that does run downstream, if you will, and eventually makes it out to the ocean. And out in the ocean, we're seeing well over the majority of things out there being plastic. So simple actions of simply reducing our use of plastic, whether it's bringing our own bags to stores, reusable water bottles, saying no to plastic drinking straws, all of that has a huge impact on cutting down on how much trash might get out into the ocean in the first place. We also think about things like sustainable seafood. So regardless of whether you live near the coast or not, seafood's on the menu and it's available at restaurants and at supermarkets. So using tools such as the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch Guide, make sure that we have the power and the tools to know what we're buying and to make sure that we're supporting groups that are catching fish in a way that it's not hurting other animals, it's not hurting the environment, and it ensures that there are healthy fish populations out there for generations to come, for us to be able to eat and for seals and sea lions to be able to eat. And then one of the biggest issues that you hear a lot about in news media and on the radio is the idea of global warming and how we really are all connected to that. We see marine mammals being affected in lots of ways. And that's an issue where every person can have a positive impact in fighting global warming. It all comes down to the burning of fossil fuels like coal, oil, and natural gas that essentially release carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, forming a heat-trapping blanket and warming the land, the air, and the water underneath it. So whether you're in Idaho or Kansas or California, trying to reduce our carbon footprint by relying more on solar energy than burning of fossil fuels, by trying to reduce how much we drive or trying to carpool, if that's an opportunity, or use public transportation, even things like composting, have a huge impact on the amount of carbon dioxide released into the atmosphere. So it just goes to show that actions that we take as individuals have a huge impact on the society that we live in because we're the ones that are then driving policy in terms of increasing the ability to recycle or plastic bag bans that you might see in different neighborhoods, but also making sure that we have a positive impact and leaving this earth a better place for our children, our grandchildren, and all the marine mammals and other animals that call this place home. Absolutely. Great. A lot of great take-home messages there. And yeah, I think just this general understanding, right, of the fact that the decisions that we make, you know, they, they have an impact far beyond sort of our immediate local environment, right? You know, the decisions that we make are affecting ocean ecosystems, regardless of where we live, whether it's in Idaho or Kansas, like you say, you know, or along the California coast. Um, Yeah, great, great, great stuff, Adam. Um, So I guess just uh, as sort of a a final comment, uh, maybe you could just um, let folks know uh, where they can go to find out more information about the Marine Mammal Center or, you know, if folks uh, uh, live in the California area, maybe how they can get involved in actually volunteering for the organization? 
Most definitely. So the Marine Mammal Center is based in Sausalito, California, just north of the Golden Gate Bridge. And we're always looking um, for additional supporters to people to come out and simply visit the hospital and learn more about us. We do have volunteer opportunities for education, animal care, our rescue departments, and many more. We're also a nonprofit, so we run off of donations. Every dollar we get goes to buy food and medicine for the animals that we're caring for. We've got a lot of great um, programs, whether it's our Adopt-A-Seal program, which makes for a great gift for others. We've got a membership program as well as a wonderful retail store, both on-site and on our website. Our website is just a great resource for more information about the work that we're doing, the stories of the patients we're taking care of, and that's at www.marinemammalcenter.org. Fantastic. Thanks a lot for uh, for coming on the show, Adam. And, you know, I'll just mention it before we leave that, you know, uh, I personally, I am really, uh, uh, I, I feel really great about this sort of collaborative relationship that, um, that Wild Lens, the nonprofit that I work for, has established um, with the Marine Mammal Center. Um, we're just about, we're just wrapping up um, work on our third uh, short documentary video uh, focusing on the really critically important work that the Marine Mammal Center is doing to uh, protect marine mammals. Um, and so that, that video will be released shortly, and we'll be releasing those, uh, those two existing videos that we've already done um, as, a, as a part of the, the, video, the companion video podcast to this show. So, uh, yeah, and, and, and of course, Adam, you know, the, the, the work that you've put into uh, uh, helping get those videos up off the ground is, has been critical, and, and uh, I, I certainly really appreciate your role in sort of stepping up and, and making sure that, um, that these, these videos move forward and your role as, as a, a producer on, on a couple of those videos. So thanks a lot, Adam. Thank you. And, and thank you, Matt and, and Wildlands, for all the great work you've done to, to help us further that mission with the videos. We really do appreciate it. And there's such great tools to really share the story of the work taking place here, but also get more people aware and involved in the work that's taking place so that they can help marine mammals wherever they live. So we really do appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure this, this collaboration that we have will continue moving forward. So I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll have you and other folks at the Marine Mammal Center uh, uh, back on the program moving into the future. We look forward to it. Great. Well, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot, Adam. Until next time. Until next time. Thanks, Matt. Yep. Bye. All right. That was our conversation with Adam Ratner from the Marine Mammal Center. As we mentioned in the interview, there are a number of ways for folks to learn more about the work being done at the Marine Mammal Center. Be sure to check out their website at www.marinemammalcenter.org. And you can also watch all three of the videos that we produced in collaboration with the Marine Mammal Center. These videos will be released alongside this podcast on our companion video podcast. That's the Eyes on Conservation video podcast. But you can also find them all on our website, eyesonconservation.com. And of course, if you live along the California coast or in Hawaii... There are some fantastic volunteer opportunities. These are opportunities to get involved in marine mammal conservation uh, as a volunteer with the Marine Mammal Center. Uh, So take a look at the Marine Mammal Center's website uh, for more information uh, about how to get involved as a volunteer. 
And, of course, we'll have links to the Marine Mammal Center's website, as well as information about how to get involved as a volunteer with the Marine Mammal Center uh, up on our show notes for this episode, which you can find at wildlensinc.org slash blog slash EOC4. That's wildlensinc.org slash blog slash EOC4. And the Marine Mammal Center is actually rather unique in its reliance upon volunteer effort and community support, uh, more so than even, I think, most other uh, wildlife conservation nonprofits. Um, And this is actually going to be the topic of our next podcast episode. We'll be talking with Marine Mammal Center volunteer Tamara Thomas about what inspired her to get involved in marine mammal conservation and why volunteer effort is so essential to the work being done by the Marine Mammal Center. We'll be releasing this episode just two weeks from today so that'll be on wednesday october 15th so be sure to check that out we're happy to be releasing two episodes of the podcast this month and of course don't forget to watch all three of our videos about the work that the marine mammal center does this will really give you a good sense of what it's like to work with this fascinating group of animals so until next time this is your host matt podolsky signing off